Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Squarespace and Storyworth. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's a busy week for us because we're doing uh, computer things, um, but somehow we posted a podcast this week. I don't know how that happened. We recorded it early, probably. The, the magic of editing. It's my theory. Servers. It's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> We went to the moon landing set where they faked the moon landing. Right. And we faked a podcast there. They That's built a podcast studio there. It's, it's very nice. specific. It's very dusty. Very dusty, though. <laughs> very dusty. It's weird. You got to cover the mics when you're not using them. Yeah. That stuff's bad news. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to start with some uh, pre-flight checklist. And you put in some some really pretty cool stuff about Apollo 4. Yeah, so we talked about Apollo 4 as part of our sort of uh, walk through the Apollo program that has dropped into real time, which is why we have a note in our document saying that in mid-October we'll talk about Apollo 7. So that's coming. But to wind it back, Apollo 4, uh, as you may or may not remember, that was the first test flight of the Saturn V. It sent an uncrewed command module to high Earth orbit, and then they did an engine burn uh, to basically test what it would be like to come back for re-entry. So the whole mission was about eight hours. Um, there is a really nice post by Jason Davis up at the Planetary Society. We'll put it in the show notes. It turns out that there was a, uh, a camera in the uh, Apollo 4 module taking pictures uh, it, it was it was timed to take them about 18,000 kilometers in altitude. They, it took 755 pictures, um, with 712 of them having Earth in the frame. They are the first color film pictures taken from that a- altitude. Apparently, these pictures have been kicking around in various forms, but when he discovered this, he couldn't find any high-resolution images other than a couple of crops. So he he actually contacted one of the image facilities that hosts space imagery. They um, found the high-res files, um, which the the person at the um, the high-res scans. Um, that person who had them uh, recompressed them into smaller JPEGs and and sent uh, Jason Davis those files. Um, he has posted them, and so you can see them. They're beautiful. It's mm-hmm. really cool, and 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 it's also kind of cool that they're like not never before seen, but sort of like not available at extremely high resolution before. And then one of the funny things that Jason Davis did is he tried to, since they're all in sequence, he tried to create a video, um, a 4K resolution video uh, using image stabilization and discovered that um, it he could, he could, with the image stabilization, it looked better, but it didn't look great. And then he found somebody who created and it looks like sort of manually aligned uh, a beautiful video of earth as seen from apollo 4 so there are all sorts of different versions and links to the scans uh you can even download a 36 gigabyte zip <laughs> file with all of the yes. jpegs uh all of those things are there so it's it's a case where if you would like to see earth uh, as seen from space in November of 1967 from Apollo 4, you can do it, and it looks great. And that th- that last video on that page is beautiful. It's it's pretty neat. And Jason points out in his article how you know it's unusual this image set is because so much of the Apollo archives are so well documented online. You can go through and see 
all sorts of things. They're all labeled. It's all very organized. But Apollo 4 kind of fell outside of the scope of that work. And uh, I'm glad that they've been surfaced. And uh, I think that if you've got 36 gigs laying around on a home server, maybe it's a good way to fill it up. (laughs) There's some really pretty kind of like crescent earth Mm -hmm. shots. Some really nice stuff there. Totally. So uh, that's a good good find. Who knew we would have Apollo 4 news? Who knew? (laughs) Breaking. Breaking Apollo 4 Mm -hmm. news. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about... uh, Jeff Bezos, he has been uh, doing a couple of speaking engagements and some interviews. This is something he's talked about before. I think we've even talked about it on the show a little bit, but it felt like a very concise moment to really talk about Jeff Bezos' vision, not only for Blue Origin, but how he sees Blue Origin sort of serving uh, in, the, in a larger story. And uh, basically, he has this idea that the moon is kind of the perfect place for like heavy industrial work and all, all sorts of it because you have a lot of resources there. You've got less gravity con- to contend with. So if you're building really big things, potentially that takes less energy. There's lots of polar ice, which can be used not only for water, but to uh, for fuel and all sorts of things. And so he kind of has this vision that heavy industry is going to move to the moon and the earth will be sort of residential and light industry. And of course, there are resources that are not on the moon, but are on earth. So there's going to need to be uh, a company. What if he just had a rocket company that could help uh, huh. help with that? Huh. You know? Interesting. What an idea. <laughs> yeah. He talks about Blue Origin uh, all over the place as like a an infrastructure company, right? The idea that if they can make space flight, you know, uh, reliable and cheap and rockets reusable, that they can form sort of the backbone of this next this next industrial revolution, if, if you will. And this is decades out. He says it's maybe even 100 years out. But it's, a, it's an interesting idea. He's, he has this quote in this article that it's almost like the moon was set up for this. Like it seems like such a perfect solution in his mind. And it's really different from what we see from other companies and it's different from what we see from other space billionaires and it's different from what blue origins doing now right they're doing these suborbital flights they are working toward suborbital uh sort of um you know fun vacation trips to the sky you go visit loji for a a little bit and then you come back and they got their orbital uh, rocket that they're working on too i mean they're they're laying they're laying the groundwork um, totally. One of the things I liked about what Bezos was talking about here is his um, idea of he endorsed the, which I guess comes from the European Space Agency, of this concept of the lunar village. And mm-hmm. what he's basically saying is, let's coordinate lunar plans so that if we're going to send, if we're going to send stuff down to the moon, and if we're going to build little moon bases, let's build them close to each other instead of scattered all over the surface. And I thought that was, you know, an example of him trying to think long-term and also be really practical. The idea that um, the moon is a great place for infrastructure, potentially. It's going to be how we learn to uh, to deal with, uh, you know, long-term. We did long-duration low-Earth orbit, right? So the next step is, is long-duration on the moon, and that you can build things there and, and it can be a place for industry. Um, and also, like, literally, if you're here and, and some other group is over there, if there's an accident, if you need resources, um, you could actually have access to them directly instead of sort of having everybody scattered over the face of the moon. And I like, I like that he's thinking on, on in that kind of terms, the, the yeah. idea that, um, 
that uh, let's let's work together and plan this out and not uh, uh, because it'll be more beneficial for everybody. Yeah, he, he sort of deals in like the the nuts and bolts of it, right? Where I think on the other hand you have Musk and others who are sort of more grand vision type speakers when it comes to this, and the details are sometimes you know sort of struggling to make sense. Where I think I think Bezos almost comes at it from the other way that it seems like he feels this stuff is inevitable. And so let's figure out how to like just the basics. Like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to put this stuff together. Yes. It makes sense to move industry, this like dangerous or harmful to our environment, put it on the lunar surface. So this it's is a, a, it's, it's an interesting, interesting corner change. of um, the space world these days. That is, there is this strain of people talking about space that are much more practical um, and they're not kind of playing on the excitement of exploration and mm-hmm. and the frontier. These are people saying there are businesses that will be born. There is money to be made. There are resources to be had. And that's not for everybody, but I think it's an interesting corner of the space industry that saying um, instead of government spending money for scientific research and for glory, um, that companies can spend money for profit and by right. finding ways to use the resources that are in space whether it's mining asteroids or whether it's setting up facilities on the moon or or both right like i mean because you could you could make an argument that um that getting things from space and not bringing them down the massive uh gravity well of the earth or potentially the moon is uh will save you if you're building spaceships or things like that you could actually build them in space um but you got to start somewhere and that's sort of what bezos seems to be talking about is is what if we what if we get started uh because there will be there will be money to be made in this and and it's not just there for glory or um scientific research yeah how do you feel about that personally i mean i i and I admit that, you know, I don't think it's any surprise anyone who's listened to this show or my other work that I I tend to be nostalgic about certain things. And like I, the like the scientific research and glory idea, like I'm all for that. Yeah, like, that's easy. And I, yeah. And it feels good. Right. And I I struggle a little bit with the idea of things like space mining or like going to the lunar surface to build things like I'm not saying it doesn't have a place, but I struggle to get excited about it. I wonder where, where you come down on that. I'm, I'm, I find it um, somewhat disturbing, but I try to get over that. Like, because I, I think there's a way to view the moon. Let's take the moon as an example and view it kind of like, and space in general, but the moon's a good example of kind of like in Antarctica, where mm. it belongs to no one. And, um, that it is this unspoiled part of nature. And I get that. At the same time, the, you know, the fact is that we are using the resources of our, of our planet that we live on. And at some point, those resources will run out. And at some point, and some would argue this happened a hundred years ago or more, we will so despoil... <laughs> the the closed environment of our own planet that will cause harm to ourselves sure and so the argument there is um you know first off like if you run out of this rare element and there's an asteroid that's full of it like pulverize the asteroid who cares if we can take something and move it to the moon and it's better on the moon um then that's not happening on earth anymore 
maybe that's a good thing. But it is, you know, I, I when you watch a, a science fiction movie and they show um, the Earth and the Moon in the future and there's like lights on the Moon because there's cities on the Moon, that's cool. But there is this question of like. At what point did people start building things on the moon so that the moon now has, like, stuff on it when you look up at night? And did people say, hey, what are you doing? You, you're you ruining my views of the moon by building things on the moon. And, you know, and then you can extend it beyond that. So the, the, this is that pu- an interesting push and pull. I guess what I would say is um, that in the end, commerce can win, but it has to be real. And it has to be practical. And my concern is that stuff will happen in space because of ego and um, and maybe because somebody in the government gets taken for a ride, to, gets told a story, and it won't actually be beneficial to anybody. And that, to me, seems the worst of all of this, is if you end up in a situation yeah. where it, it doesn't have a scientific benefit, it's not for glory, like, in terms of uh, reaching the unknown, it's more about sort of like a scam where somebody, you know, says that it's going to be uh, a business proposition, but in fact, uh, that's not, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And that's that's what I don't know about the moon and why I think we do need to go there and explore. And that's why I was bummed out by the Lunar Prospector being um, killed is I feel like you got to go there and see if it's practical or not. Because as as interesting as Jeff Bezos's vision is, you know, it's worth having that conversation. Like, is the moon uh, a practical place to do stuff like this? Is it is he, the helium three on it super valuable? Is the water ice accessible? Are you know, is this a practical place to do this stuff for us to kind of move out into space, or is it not? And we won't know until we investigate it further. So I think these issues will all come up, though. I think it's worth. It's always worth saying that the the um, sending people to Mars is going to be an issue because we try to sterilize everything we send to planets because mm-hmm. we don't want to um, bring our life from Earth to them and then fa- potentially befoul what might be evidence of life that previously existed or even currently exists in those places. Um, so the moment humans show up and have to put their poop somewhere, <laughs> like everything <laughs> is ruined and uh, there are, I know there are people who talk about that stuff and I'm not saying we don't, we shouldn't explore, but it is a funny, um, uh, a funny dichotomy. And I, so I keep coming back to something like Antarctica, which is, there is this question of like, does, does space belong to everybody or nobody? And the answer is if space realistically is a place for profit, people are going to go there and we're going to have to figure this out one way or another because they're not going to be stopped. So it's it's going to be inevitable, I feel like, regardless. But but it, it also feels to me like there's a long way to go before we get someplace like that. Yeah, it's all it's all super complex. And I think it's only going to get more so as you have more players, right? If it's just the government or, you know, several governments across the world, that's one thing. And governments may disagree, but I think they sort of all have that same mindset of, of past exploration. But, you know, when you have corporations and and especially corporations like Blue Origin and SpaceX that are so driven by their founder. You right. know, it's not, you know, it's, it, ULA is different, right? Because it's like this giant corporation and like nine people out of 10 can't tell you who the CEO of ULA is, but everyone can tell you who the CEO of SpaceX is. You know, that that's a different thing. And that complicates matters when you have the vision of a single person or a small group of people. 
as opposed well, to a, well, a government or a big, big company. I mean, let me throw out a hypothetical. This is just uh, just because I think that it, it shifts the perspective enough to, to th- ask the question, which is, what if the Chinese government says that they've been working on machines that will um, that will mine the moon for something valuable, let's say helium three, but it could be you know whatever, something valuable, and either uh, store it there for their own use or we'll send it back to Earth and they will take it. And these machines will basically like mow the moon. They're going to roll over the moon. And in a course of five or 10 years, there's going to be a huge visible patch of the lunar surface that has been churned up and altered by these Chinese machines. Um, You know, are other governments on Earth going to be like, um, you know, what are you doing? If they say, if they say, well, we just, we got there first and we've just taken all the resources out of there. I mean, it seems like, at some point, um, our entire concept of like nation states on territory on planet Earth breaks down, and the nation states are like, "Well, no, 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 that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to everyone." And they say, "Well, actually, we have it, so it belongs to us." And there's, I realize that that gets into the province of science fiction a little bit, but we're not that far away potentially from having to deal with something like that. Mm-hmm. And that, and that kind of a hypothetical where it's you know some you know another actor who is not Jeff Bezos or. Uh, uh, or Elon Musk or the U.S. government or the ESA, but let's say China as an example, because they're kind of separated from a lot of uh, space stuff elsewhere. Like it starts to be this question of how do you do that? How do you how do you deal with that? And does it become a space race that, of a different kind? How do we deal with uh, not having weapons in space if suddenly it becomes militarized? And and the answer is that um, it may not be practical for any of this uh, ever or for hundreds of years, but. Um, our current systems don't really work for dealing with stuff like that. And so who knows yeah, what's going right. to happen. It's a lot to think about. Do we, uh, we take our first break and then jump back into some topics. Space podcast is brought to you by Squarespace products. Yes, I did it. Make your next move with Squarespace, which is not in space. It's on earth so far. Squarespace lets you create a website for your next idea a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store or a portfolio or a blog. It doesn't really matter. Squarespace can do it for you. It's an all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install, no software patches. You don't need to run your own server. Squarespace does all that for you. All you do is work on your website and publish it, and Squarespace gives you all the tools to do that. If you need help, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name so your site will have a name, whether it's a portfolio or a blog or anything else. It'll have its own name. And all of these uh, templates that they provide you with, they're award-winning. They're beautiful. They'll let you show off your great ideas without you having to be a designer at all. Plans start at just $12 a month. That That's it. $12 a month and you get your own website. You can start a trial and don't even have to give them a credit card by going to squarespace.com liftoff. If you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, why wouldn't you? Use the offer code LIFTOFF and you'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, and you'll show your support of this show. Thank you to Squarespace. That's squarespace.com slash liftoff with code LIFTOFF for 10% off. Squarespace, make your next move. Make your next website. Squarespace! Again. It's good. It's good. It's in the name. For Pete's sake, it's in the name. Everyone's favorite, maybe it's a planet, is is uh, is in the news in this article over on the Atlantic, uh, kind of catching everyone up on yeah. 
planet, planet 13. Nine. Oh, no, Planet 9. You're right. You're right. It's not that is one of my least favorite planets is Planet 13. Very few people believe there's a Planet 13. Yeah. Um, nice piece in The Atlantic by Marina Corrin. Um, just kind of a Planet 9 update, basically. But there is there is one more piece of data. There's not a lot going on. Apparently, Mike Brown and Konstantin Batygin, who sort of floated this idea uh, and popularized it, are looking. Um, they spent some time on the the telescopes in Hawaii looking for it. Seems like they haven't found it yet. Um, and this update says that there was another strange object in the outer solar system found. It's got a super catchy name. 2015 BP519. Mm. Rolls right off the tongue. Yeah. There's a couple of fives in there. Anyway, uh, it like several other objects that we've talked about in the context of Planet Nine, has a highly tilted orbit. In this case, it's 54 degrees above the plane of the solar system. That's weird. Usually, most objects are in the plane of the solar system. And when there's an object that's not, there has to be a reason it, it got there, right? There has to be a reason. So um, uh, the discoverer, uh, Juliet Becker of the University of Michigan, she ran a simulation of the solar system. She ran a whole bunch of simulations trying to figure out, like, kind of how did it get there? And uh, working with her team, it sounds like um, they the the most satisfying explanation they got was when they added something that looked a lot like Planet Nine, this slow moving, massive planet that's kind of meandering through the outer solar system, the distant outter solar system. Now, um, Brown and Batygin are very excited because this is in line with what they've been saying all along, that there are a lot of these outer solar system objects with really weird positions. And and in their models, the explanation for this is Planet Nine. So for them, this is another log on the fire, another extra little bit of weight toward uh, their belief that Planet Nine is out there. Now, there are yeah. scientists who dissent. Like uh, Anne-Marie Madigan, who is a friend of Constantine Batygin's, actually. It's a, I'm sure that they have, like, uh, back and forth, maybe trolling each other a little bit. I don't know. Because um, she says there's this whole other idea, which is this collective gravity idea, which is there are a whole bunch of small bodies out there. And the clustering that we see with all these objects in these weird orbits, it just could be that they are all acting upon each other. Um Hmm. He says he can't see it. Batygin says in his simulations he can't see it. He said, you could probably cook up a scenario that looks like what Madigan is saying, but he doesn't think that, um, I mean, you would have to basically, you would have to cook it up and say, see, that could work. Whereas in all of his models, he, he says Planet Nine is by far the most likely scenario here. Um, so how does this get resolved? We're back to where we were before, which is essentially there are two ways to resolve this story. And one of them is to find other outer system bodies that don't match the models that are in the wrong right. places, at which point it's like, oh, this breaks the Planet Nine model. Or, as Batygin says, and he's quoted in, the, in this article at The Atlantic, just find the damn thing, which is what they're trying to do. <laughs> so, um, so, that, yeah. that's the, so the update is basically... People are still skeptical. There's one new piece of information. It fits the model, but having another piece of information doesn't prove anything other than, uh, again, that that it seems like their model is a good one. But there are other explanations that could possibly be 
uh, what's going on here. So not, I, it, it's a weird thing where it's like you get a new piece of data and basically it's like, does this disprove our theory? No, it fits it. Yay. But it doesn't really prove anything other than it doesn't disprove it and fits it. It would be a fun episode of Liftoff if we could talk about them finding it. Oh, boy. That would be, I mean, really, to have a space podcast when they find a planet would be uh, spectacular. That's that's the closest we're going to get to glory, let me tell you. It's the podcast Olympics right there. That's We'd, ha- we'd have to do like a flash uh, emergency liftoff when, oh, yeah. uh, when they oh, find yeah. Planet Line. The day that happens, like whatever we're doing, I can tell you we're dropping it. Yeah. We're going to record a show. <laughs> uh, let's shift gears a little bit. And I want to talk, talk about China. You mentioned it earlier how China is is basically cut off um it's cut off by NASA by US law like <laughs> it's crazy um the US law forbids direct involvement between China's space program and NASA and that that has some repercussions of course at the International Space Station China has its own space station program we talked about uh, their previous station uh, came down just like a month or so ago but they are uh touting their next program and they're going about it in a way that I find really interesting they're saying it could be operational as soon as 2022 and that uh, China basically is saying that it is ready to help any country interested in developing their own space technology uh, with this station and so any country that wants to um, partner with them and have something on the station or work on it to develop their own programs China says it's throwing the doors open to that work which is uh, is really interesting to me. That's not necessarily what we always see from them, and it's particularly interesting that this China is the one saying this, uh, while the U.S. continues to not work with China at all. Um, and is interesting to add to this this layer of uh, topic is that the future of the International Space Station is being hotly debated right now. There's talk of it being privatized there's talk of it um you know reaching the end of its useful life at some point and what do you do with something that big and it are there commercial partners that could even or would even want to carry out research there can the station even support that long term and there's not really a plan uh, at least that we can see clearly a way forward beyond the space station besides trying to extend its life and now you have china saying they're going to build one with anyone yeah, who wants to with work me. with them. <laughs> yeah. Like, a, a, you know, are we going to see a shift away from from the International Space Station to this Chinese space station? Is that is that the future? Uh, and America won't be a part of it? Um, it it's yeah, really interesting. Yeah, and I think it, it right now, if you talk to, uh, you know, NASA watchers, it seems to me like the chatter is about that, the lunar orbital gateway and the moon. And the idea yeah. that now that we've done the low Earth orbit thing, like let's let's do something else, let's do cislunar space, right? And so there's a question of how real that is because China's sort of saying, well, hey, how about low Earth orbit? You've been there for a while. Why don't we keep this rolling? And the question is, like, what are people going to do? Are they going to be like, yeah, sure, that's great, let's do more of that, or are they going to say, meh, we did that. We're gonna we're gonna go over here and play on the moon now, or play near the moon, whatever. And it's mm-hmm. it is unclear what what happens to the ISS is really unclear. I think the modules like belong to individual countries, so there's that yeah. question too. Um, we mentioned this a while ago. Like, would Russia 
uh, take their ball and go home. Like literally, like we're going to disconnect a bunch of modules and um, make our own little mini Russian space station out of them, or disconnect these modules and uh, take them somewhere else. Uh, that I don't know how plausible that is. I don't know how um, you know what is what we are even capable of these days what everybody is capable of um it would seem like an awful shame for the iss to just kind of like get deorbited and burn up um but it also is very expensive to keep it there so it's a it's a real mystery and then throw in the fact that we're not by law uh, americans are not allowed to work with chinese people on space that's a that's a tough one right now i that you got to think that that's got to give at some point because it's such a weird restriction like as I've said before, that, you know, Russia, no, yes, China, no, is a very interesting, like, threading that needle of international politics. Very strange stuff. It, it is. And, and I, I don't I don't see the law concerning China changing under this administration. Who knows? I would think you know, <laughs> anything could happen. Uh, anything could happen. But I, I do I do tend to think that if if this station is built out and, and it's successful and they have partners come on board, that that may be uh, a carrot for the American government to say, hey, you know what, uh, this is something that we should, that we should change. And, um, you know, even with the, the, the Deep Space Gateway or whatever they're calling it this week, you know, even then, like, there's still, I think, I think there will still be room for low or low Earth orbit work. But uh, yeah, maybe it won't be, maybe it won't be us. Uh, maybe it all shifts there, and like you said, the the lunar space is dominated by the new American station there, and who knows? Um, I think very clearly this is going to be uh, a real complicated area in the next five to ten years as the space station we have now changes when one way or another, either we we pull our funding or it starts to fail in ways that are not fixable easily. Um, I don't know. I, th- I just think that the the time of its being a really stable platform in a bunch of different ways is probably coming to an end. Yeah, the what's next and how we get there is the real missing missing piece. And it, it's unclear that there's any. I mean, we don't have a clear sense, a clear direction, certainly from NASA about what they're planning. It's uh, it feels to me like they don't know what they have next, and so they're keeping the plates spinning right like we'll just you know let's just kind of kick the can down the road a little bit but at some point they're going to have to deal with it at some point they're going to have to actually say this is when it's going to end or or like we have a partner or we're looking for a partner but right now i think they just they don't have an answer so they're they're not going to answer it and it just remains unknown so what's going on with virgin galactic virgin galactic speaking of space tourism which you mentioned with uh, with blue origin um, this, of course, is the uh, the system that uh, has been in development for a long time. It won the the uh, X Prize back in the day for getting uh, getting to space uh, in a reusable vehicle. It's based on that system, the Spaceship One system. Um, this is uh, obviously with the Virgin name on it. Richard Branson has funded this. It's going to be a space tourism setup. The idea is that they have a spaceship that is basically a, uh, a capsule. Well, not a capsule. It's a it's a, uh, a plane with a rocket on the back, and it's got a pilot area and a passenger area, and it attaches to a, a, a bigger plane that takes it up high, and then it drops and fires its rocket and goes straight up. 
and they did their second successful test flight in the last few months. If you remember, there was a fatal accident in 2014, mm-hmm. so they shut down the program, had to build a new uh, a new vehicle, figure out what was going on. Um, but they had a successful test flight. Um, this one went to 114,500 feet in altitude, which is almost 35 kilometers, fired its rocket for 31 seconds. And then, of course, it uh, the way the, this thing works is then it basically goes into um, pl- airplane mode, glider mode, and comes down and lands back in the Mojave Desert where this all takes place. Um, and they say that there's going to be another test in six weeks that will burn them the rocket for about 40 seconds. Um, and the plan is for three or four more test flights, at which point they will begin commercial flights. So if they have mm-hmm. three or four more test flights and it all works according to plan, then what they, they say is they want to get the t- turnaround ultimately down to about four days, which is pretty wild. And they'll just do space tour- space tourism where they load a few people on and take them up and shoot them into space. And, you know, they'll be up above the line of space. And uh, for a seat, it'll be $250,000. Richard Branson, I think, is supposed to be the first, you know, on the first one. Once it's certified for regular people, he says he wants to do that. Um, And this is interesting because... I mean, if they can get it to work, and that's a, that's the real question is they, they've had an accident, they're, they're coming back now, they're trying to, to get the, the turnaround to be fast, and that's a lot of ifs. But if they did, they would be the first, um, the first regular uh, volume space tourism business to exist because occasional space tourists on the International Space Station doesn't quite count. And, and what I keep thinking of with this is there is going to come a moment, probably fairly soon in our lifetimes, where that Wikipedia page that lists everybody who's ever been in space <laughs> will have to be shut down. I don't know if there's actually a <laughs> Wikipedia page, right? But there's like, it's a very limited number. It's people on uh, experimental Air Force uh, rocket planes, and it's, uh, it's astronauts and cosmonauts and taikonauts and whatever else. People shot into space by the major space agencies. And that's it. That's the list right now. But if Virgin is carting up three or four people every week, then, um, then truly the era of space tourism has begun. So we're not there yet, but they're saying that if all goes well, we could be there in a year. Mm-hmm. And it's a, you know, it's a weird, it's a weird idea because they're not trying to get you to orbit. They just, they, they literally, they take you up high in a plane, drop you on your little rocket ship. The rocket ship shoots up as high as they can go. And then you float for a few minutes and then, uh, you come back down and land back on yeah. back in the desert. It's like a a, a one loop vomit comet on steroids, <laughs> you know. Yeah, sure. That was a lot of that was a lot of words that you put together there. There's a, there's a metaphor there, but yeah, that's the idea: is that you're getting you can say you're in space, you can see the curvature of the Earth, you can see how dark it is, all those things. You can you're above the agreed upon limit for space, and then yeah, you'll have that free fall period where uh, you get to experience weightlessness, and then uh, and then yeah, then you come back to Earth and say, I went to space. And here's my check for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's gonna be fun. Sure, I'm I'm uh, ready to go. Nope, <laughs> not gonna happen. No, no, it's not in my budget. Unfortunately, they gotta they gotta get the price down a bit. Uh, so got a little bit more to talk about, but I want to tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by StoryWorth, the easiest way to share your family stories. 
StoryWorth makes it easy and enjoyable for your loved ones to share their life stories with weekly emailed story prompts and questions you might not think to ask. Then at the end of the year, they'll get their stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. It's sleek with a black and white interior, color cover up to 480 pages. You have a wordy family member, don't worry, that that book can handle it. And this means that you and your loved ones can preserve their memories and even pass the book on to future generations. So here's how it works. You buy a subscription for someone important to you, and every week, StoryWorth, they just send them an email with a question about their life. They can reply to that email back with a story. They can even call in and record it over the phone if they're not email savvy. And after a year, their stories will be bound into that beautiful book for them to keep. And StoryWorth is a great way to learn more about someone. The questions are designed to evoke entertaining, surprising, and moving responses. And again, questions that you might not, uh, not, not think to ask. StoryWorth is a great way of staying in touch with family members who may live a little further away than you'd like. And like I said, they can write stories and upload photos by email or even on the web or in the app. And you can share the stories with as many people as you want. So say that you are sort of, quote, interviewing uh, maybe uh, a grandparent and you want to share all that, all those answers with your siblings. You can just add them via email and everyone can get those answers as, uh, as your grandparent fills them out. You can save and edit your own stories on storyworth.com. And all the data is secure and everything is private by default. You get complete control over who sees your memories. So I'm going through this this year with my dad. I got him a subscription, and it's really, really fascinating, some of his answers. You know, I, I know a lot about my dad, but I'm learning stuff through this experience. I knew that he, for instance, went on this road trip in college. He went out west with some buddies, like, kind of all summer long, but that's kind of all I knew about it, and there was a question about a road trip, and so I got to learn a lot more about that experience. They're unique questions. They're easy to answer. It's just an email or a phone call to get those back. So if you're looking for something meaningful and maybe, let's be honest, last minute for a Father's Day gift, StoryWorth is a perfect gift for someone you care about. So now is the time to place your order. Listeners of this show can get $20 off their subscription by visiting storyworth.com slash liftoff. That's $20 off when you visit storyworth.com slash liftoff. StoryWorth, a new way to bring the family together. Thank you to them for their support of this show and Relay FM. So we've had, uh, unfortunately, in the last uh, week or, or so, uh, news of the deaths of two American astronauts. And this is not something we cover real often on the show, but I think both of these, uh, both of these men had impressive careers that, that are worth talking about briefly. Um, uh, the first was Alan Bean. He was a, a test pilot for the U.S. Navy. He was in the third group of astronauts selected in October 1963, one of just 14. And he flew twice into space, the first being the lunar module pilot on Apollo 12, uh, which is the second uh, landing on the moon, which we will get to uh, eventually in 2019 on this show. Um, but uh, being with, uh, along with Apollo 12 commander Pete Conrad, who we've spoken about before, uh, landed on the ocean of storms. He became the fourth human to walk on the moon. They had two moonwalks, lots of scientific uh, experiments on the surface, including, I didn't know this, the first nuclear-powered generator uh, on the moon to provide power source. So they, they brought that with them. And uh, what's really interesting, and this is, uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about Apollo 12 to get into this specifically, but they landed near and then went and inspected a robotic surveyor spacecraft 
So a spacecraft that it was there and had landed, and they went and checked that out to see how its various uh, surfaces and the metal used and all that stuff, how that held up on the on the lunar surface, because that was just unknown at the time. Pretty interesting stuff. And they brought back a bunch of moon rocks, because that's what you did. That's what you did when you went to the moon, Jason. You went and you brought back a bunch of rocks. Sample return missions are hard. And so if you send a person and you're bringing them back, then uh, bring samples back, too. So yes. they bring a load of rocks with them. Mm-hmm. 75 pounds worth. 34 kilograms. That's <laughs> good metric knowledge there. Good job. It's good. It's in parentheses here in the document. Yeah. So. Well, it's because we just... care about our international listeners who don't know what the heck pounds are. Uh, Alan Bean was also the commander of the second crewed flight to Skylab. We spoke about Skylab way back on liftoff episode 17. You remember that the first crewed flight to Skylab basically had to rescue the space station. It was damaged. Uh, one of its solar wings didn't deploy. It was overheating, all these problems. And uh, this first Skylab crew basically patched it together enough where they could continue to use it. Um, but Skylab 3, which is the mission he was on, uh, they were there nearly 60 days. It was uh, one of these deals of we've been we've been in space for a little bit amount of time. Let's see what happens if we stay there longer. We saw that in the Gemini missions as well, right? Hey, you know, we got to go to the moon and back. That's going to take some time. What happens if we stay in orbit that long? And Skylab 3 was a major ratcheting up of that study, nearly 60 days. Um, During the mission, Bean himself tested a prototype of the manned maneuvering unit. Uh, There's uh, some pictures of this online where he's inside the spacecraft in this this thing, uh, experimenting with it. Uh, They also performed one spacewalk outside of Skylab. And they uh, they had a little bit of a scare. Their Apollo command service module that they used uh, had uh, a thruster that was leaking, and they were worried they wouldn't be able to dock, but they were able to dock. Uh, But there was concern that they may have problems uh, undocking or even re-entering because of this thruster. So they're working out to troubleshoot it, and there was conversation about rolling out a second Apollo spacecraft to fly a rescue mission. Which uh, we we remember this from the later shuttle missions. They did this after Columbia, where they had a, a second shuttle ready to go. But this would have been uh, a first uh, in the the early days that we would have two Apollo spacecraft in orbit. Two of them docked. Basically, they'd fly it up and dock it with Skylab and then rescue these guys. Uh, that ended up not happening. They were able to work around the issue, but. Uh, almost had a, a real sort of historical situation on their hands during Skylab 3. Yeah, if uh, people have watched or should watch From the Earth to the Moon, there's an episode, obviously, about Apollo 12, where Alan Bean is played, I want to say, by Dave Foley from The Kids in the Hall, and is it's great. And in fact, it that show made me so fond of each of the Apollo astronauts because they're all they're mostly I don't know if I want to say all, but mostly played by pretty notable people. And I really love that Alan Bean, Pete Conrad uh, episode about Apollo 12. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's kind of wacky. And uh, it really does make you fond for fond of those guys and uh, and and what they went through, and then to the, follow it up with uh, with Skylab. So, um, so yes, rest in peace, Alan Bean. Yeah, and of course he's he's really well known too for his art, right? So he he retired from NASA right. 
to devote time to painting. And he, and you can look at his artwork. It's all like his whole mission in his art was to capture space exploration, mm. like in a way that everyone could enjoy it. And uh, he had this thing where he would use basically like small pieces of his mission patches, like and embed them in his artwork for texture. It's some really fascinating stuff. And um, he he was an artist the last several decades of his life as his as his full time full time gig. And um, reading about him and prep for this, uh, that is is very clearly how he thought of himself and how he presented himself to the world was uh, as an artist. And I think that's I think that's pretty neat for someone who you know we think about these guys in the early NASA days as being you know test pilots. Uh, you know, they've, they've got nerves of steel. They are kind of tough, rough guys, but so many of them had other more complex sides to them. And I think that, uh, I think that Alan Bean is a prime example of that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a great picture on his Wikipedia page of him in his art studio surrounded by space art. And he's wearing, um, he's wearing like an apron basically covered in paint and he's got an Apollo mission patch on his denim apron it's his smock or whatever it is yeah it's hilarious and uh, that's awesome yeah uh, we also had uh news of donald peterson's passing uh he uh, we just spoke about um the manned orbiting laboratory mol mole the mole guys yeah, mole uh, men mole, mole men. men this is the yeah in the in the book uh about the early days of the shuttle program because mm-hmm. a lot of those shuttle astronauts came over from the air force from the the mol uh which was the spy satellite with guys instead of film <laughs> which yeah. is a classic moment of like we could do this oh we don't need to do this anymore but the, a lot of those people ended up in the uh in the space shuttle program yep uh including donald peterson he joined in 1969 and uh, flew on STS-6 uh, in April 1983. It was the maiden voyage of the the Challenger orbiter, which, w- of course, would be destroyed just three years later. Uh, he, uh, on that mission, the crew conducted a bunch of experiments, including materials processing, and they deployed the first tracking and data relay satellite from... Uh, from the shuttle. Remember, the shuttle was basically a pickup truck that went to space. So they deployed that and sort of proved that, that was doable. And then took, uh, along with Story Musgrave, the first spacewalks from the shuttle itself. So testing things like the airlock, uh, the new modified suit that had been evolved for use with the shuttle, new tools and techniques for construction. Uh, there's a picture on the Wikipedia page for STS 6 of uh, these two astronauts in the bay of the shuttle but suited up and it's sort of a it's sort of a surreal image for me because normally you think about spacewalks and you, you think about the earth being in the background at least i do like that's sort of the the shot uh but they're just hanging out in the bed of the space pickup you know um testing out this 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 new technique and this new hardware uh, a big step there um but that was his that was his flight and he ended up uh resigning from nasa in november 1984. So STS-6 is his is his flight after a long career. Uh, well, I, uh, I was going to say he spent uh, 14, 15 years as a NASA astronaut. It was very clear that he was holding out totally. for, for a mission, and he got it. And then he said, all right, <laughs> I put in my time. I'm going to go do something else now. Yeah. Yeah, and I would imagine uh, you know, being involved in that time period, being involved in getting the shuttle ready, 
you know, you get to do a flight like that. That's the way to cap off a career in that time frame. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, so that does raise the question, I think, about the remaining moonwalkers. And there's only four. Right. Uh, we've got B- Buzz Aldrin of Apollo 11, who out of the four by far is in the spotlight the most today. You have David Scott of Apollo 15, Charlie Duke of Apollo 16, and Jack Schmidt of Apollo 17. Just uh, just four left. Yeah, and um, if you think about it, so all of the Moonwalkers are in their 80s now. They were all born in, uh, all of these surviving Moonwalkers were born in the 1930s. Um, in fact, all but Alan Shepard of the Moonwalkers were born in the 30s. You, that was the right age to be. Um, in your in your 30s when you or early 40s when you stepped on the moon um, and so uh, the 80s are a tough decade like the, the they're all getting up there the youngest is Charlie Duke um, and or is it yeah yeah the youngest is Charlie Duke by a few months over Jack Schmidt but like they are they're all getting up there so we've only got four of the 12 left and if you look at the if you throw in the astronauts who kind of flew around the moon it's the same story like the youngest of them who is still with us is still in his 80s and so you know there's there's uh i i keep thinking and this moment is going to come it's going to come soon and and there's not going to be an answer to this when it happens now we're pretty sure about that at this point that I think of uh, the end of Apollo 13, where Tom Hanks as Jim Lovell, who is 90 now, um, says, you know, I look up at the moon and, and I wonder when we're going to go back and who will that be? And I, it's pretty clear now that it's almost, it's it's highly unlikely that any of the men who walked on the moon will see somebody walk on the moon again, which is a real shame, uh, but that's where we are, is... is uh, that unless we move up uh, our moon landings really fast and somebody lives a really long time, which let's hope we get a hundred year old moonwalker. I want to see it, but, um, but they're, they're going and it's, uh, it's sad because that will be a real, I think that will be a real uh, loss to the world when the Apollo um, moon landers are all gone. I think on that downer, <laughs> we're at the end, at the end of the show this week. Uh, if you want to read more about what we've discussed, there are links over on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 74. You can get in touch with us there. Uh, you can find the Tumblr where we post stuff in between episodes. Uh, you can send us an email. Or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is jsnell, uh, J-S-N-E-L-L. Uh, Jason writes sixcolors.com and hosts a bunch of shows here on Relay FM as well as over on The Incomparable. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. And uh, until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.